and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty here, reporting in from beautiful and sunny Massachusetts, where I'm here for a cannabis conference. And I have my partner in Chicago, Larry Mishkin. How you doing, Larry? Jim, I'm just fine. How are you doing out there on the East Coast? Very good. It's been nonstop meetings. There's so much going on. I was in Manhattan for three days, and now I have a series of meetings here in Massachusetts. The industry's just changing so much. You know, you've probably heard me say that what happened in Colorado will never happen again. And it's just every day that's more true. Where, you know, back in the day, 10 years ago, you could borrow $5,000 on your credit card, rent a storefront and start buying and selling marijuana. Now it's literally $25 million, $50 million to get these started. It's just shocking. Well, you know, it, it, it's, we talked about this earlier, and capital is, is yeah, capital is a becoming a big, big issue. I want to hear about, you were telling me, you were out in New York trying to, to work on some capital, and we just had the Benzinga conference here in Illinois for the last two days in Chicago, Tuesday and Wednesday, which is a big uh, cannabis conference that primarily focuses on capital. And my two takeaways from it were capital still is driving this industry, and it's still difficult to get. How about you? Yes, there's a lot of money that wants to get into it, but it's hard to deploy it properly. So many right. of these projects, some of them are more scams. Some of them do not have the right business experience. So it's really hard to match up talented, say, cultivators with the capital. But, yeah, I had several meetings in Manhattan and a lot, lot of interest, a lot of big money on the sidelines just looking for the right project. And I have to tell you that some of the meetings were a little tense and the people we met with were kind of grouchy because they had invested heavily in the first round of publicly traded cannabis companies in Canada. And now they've lost like 75%. Yeah, well, it's still tricky out there. There's no question about it. You know, both in terms of trying to invest in the space and in terms of trying to raise the money for it. And of course, we're going through it here big time in Illinois right now because all of the current medical providers have this opportunity to, you know, roll into adult use. But in order to do it and to expand, they're all out looking for capital as well as the new people. So all this resources here in Illinois are getting tapped pretty hard right now. Yes, yes. And, you know, the investors are going to want 20, 30 percent returns to compensate them for the risk on an industry that's still federally illegal. But tell us a little more about Illinois, because um, I know that you've had some meetings with one of my partners out in Illinois recently, and there seems to be a lot of activity percolating. January 1st, there'll be legal marijuana in Illinois. I think we've talked about that on past shows. We have, and we're very excited about it. And you're right, Jim, I did have an opportunity to work with your partner, Corey Parnell, and then it worked out really, really well. I have a client in the space right now who's not yet quite ready to, to public as to who they are, but uh, they are making a, a real serious play for a number of dispensaries. And quite frankly, given the way they wanted to run their business and their long-term plans are, we needed the assistance of uh, Bridge West for a little bit of uh, financial planning, tax planning, and long-term planning in case 
this group ultimately seeks licenses in other states as well. Corey was kind enough. He was in Chicago, and he took the time to come over and meet with my clients and me. We had a very, very successful meeting. Uh, my clients were thrilled with the financial plan that Corey was able to offer them in terms of where we can go with this thing. He's proven to be very, very valuable to me as well as I put together uh, the operating agreements and start working on all the portions dealing with how they want to have their tax treatments and every like thing like that. So uh, it's been a real pleasure, and I've uh, really enjoyed working with him. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the kind words on what we're doing. Yeah, it's just the barriers to entry, I guess we could talk about that, are just so high right now because, you know, you do need tens and tens of thousands of, of lawyer help and CPA help on your application. Uh, you need to pay rent on buildings you may not occupy for a year. So many things going on. And we've talked more, but I didn't talk more today about the social equity component. Like here in Massachusetts, it's actually helpful for your application and getting a license if you have a marijuana conviction on your record, while yeah. at the same time, that conviction is going to cause you other barriers, like, for instance, maybe getting a, a bank or something like that to work with you. So how is it? Some of the people call it social justice. Other call it economically disadvantaged. What's going on in Illinois on that, Larry? Yeah, it, it, it's a straight social equity plan, and you're, you're, you're right about that, Jim. It sets up a very, very interesting you know, dichotomy where, on the one hand, people who have conviction, it's been very damaging in their lives up to this point, but all of a sudden, it's going to provide them with a real benefit. One of the ways you can qualify in Illinois as a social equity applicant if you can demonstrate that you yourself were a victim of the war on drugs, meaning that, you know, you were you were arrested and prosecuted and convicted. And in Illinois, they're really addressing both of those issues at once, which is, I think, really the hallmark of the program. It has a couple of different components. On the one hand, and I think the most important part of the social equity program is that one, now that the law has been passed, anyone in the state of Illinois who has a conviction for a misdemeanor or up to a class four felony conviction uh, related to cannabis and marijuana, as long as there was no violence involved, can move to have that conviction expunged now. Whether they want to apply to be in the industry or not, uh, they can get their conviction expunged, which then clearly puts them in a much better position to be able to go out and do whatever they want to do with their lives. But at the same time, qualifies them to get the 50 bonus points that you can get for being a qualified social equity applicant and can really give them a, a major advantage uh, in the scoring and hopefully with respect to being able to actually get a dispensary license in the state. We're getting both. That's right. In the, you know, background, that's, that's 50 points out of like well. 200, right? Yeah. It, there's uh, On the expungement side, they're saying that they think that as many as 800,000 convictions could be expunged. And on the other side, you know, the, the business side is, is very, very interesting because, predictably, uh, there's a number of groups out there that are heavily involved in negotiations with potential social equity applicants uh, for purposes of forming a team. However, the other thing that the Illinois legislature did, which I applaud, to protect the social equity applicants from just becoming a, a straw man or woman, is that the, when, at the time you apply to verify your social equity status, you have to demonstrate by way of submitting your written agreements that the individual who qualifies your group for social equity must own 51% of the business and must be the one primarily in control 
of the day-to-day operations of the business. So, you know, you can't put together an LLC where on paper the social equity person has 51% ownership to make them a Class B member and only the Class A members get to vote for the managers and they're not a manager and all that other kind of stuff. That's not going to fly. So that's proven to be a little bit tricky for groups that have the money and the ability and would like to work with a social equity applicant but don't want to uh, see total control over their business. Another way that the state has put into place to kind of help with that is if you don't live in one of the designated neighborhoods and if you're not yourself a victim, you can still get social equity status by employing at least 10 people, six of whom would otherwise qualify as social equity applicants themselves. And the advantage if you do it that way is you don't have to share ownership with anybody. It's your business. You're just employing uh, at least six out of your 51% of your employees of 10 or more who are social equity applicants or social equity qualified themselves. So that's been thrown in there as well, which will kind of give everyone a chance, if they're interested in doing so, to tap into those 50 bonus points. Yes, and of course, the social equity applicants are going to have even higher hurdles and additional challenges when it comes to capital formation. Well, what's interesting about that is that the Illinois statute is setting up a fund. They're collecting the fees from all of the applications this time around, as well as the annual fees that they're going to be collecting. And they're going to actually, the statute calls for them to do this. They're going to establish a fund of at least $20 million that will be money that's available for qualified social equity applicants to access for low interest loans to be provided by the state. So they hope that that will address at least some part of that and give them a little bit more of a level playing field. The interesting thing is that there's nothing in the statute that necessarily provides for training of how to run one of these businesses. Now what we're seeing are uh, groups that are out there working towards doing that. And I happen to be working with a group in Illinois that's been uh, wonderful in terms of trying to take the lead and getting out there and opening up a um, an incubator that will be available to social equity applicants to come in for assistance with their applications, but more importantly, to learn how to run a business in case they actually do get the license. Well, that's all very interesting. And that is interesting to hear that Illinois would have a fund for the social equity applicants. Because again, even if you're not a social equity applicant and you've got stellar credit and a college education and, you know, access to capital is still a huge challenge in this industry. It is. So, right. And it's very interesting what you say about the training because, you know, you just take, you know, whether you're cultivating or have retail, you're going to have a lot of employees and you really have to understand all the workers' comp rules, the unemployment tax rules, paid vacation time, health insurance. Don't forget. Just just on the HR side, the human resource side. Right. You know, and as, as we discussed last week, the 10th Circuit issued that ruling not too long ago saying that the Fair Labor Standards Act does apply to employees in the cannabis industry. So even though cannabis remains federally illegal, the employees in the industry are being given the benefits, the benefits provided by federal law that other employees get. And it was interesting that in doing that, the court noted and focused their attention on the fact that to not do it that way would make it unfair for employers in non-cannabis-related fields who did have to comply with the Fair Labor Standards Act. 
So they, they kind of held the owners in the marijuana industry to a higher standard that typically applies through federal law. I think that that's a very, very important ruling. It's a great ruling if you're an employee and if you're going to be an employer, it does put a burden on you then, as you correctly point out, to make sure that they understand all of those federal laws and they're in full compliance with them, uh, with their employees. Very good points, which brings us to something that I was wanted to talk about on this week's podcast, which is the uh, alternative health case that was came down a little bit ago, I guess a couple of months ago now, which basically right. says it doesn't really matter who pays the employee for their wages to be deductible or not deductible. What matters is the activity that that employee is doing. Right. And as I recall, Jim, in that case, was it not a situation where there was actually the management group? And the management group employed all the employees and they were kind of running it, but they weren't, you know, they were doing it by way of a contract with the license holder. And did the court in that case not rule? Didn't they rule that in light of the conduct that the management company was engaged in, that as a result, they were now also subject to the, the strictures of Rule 280E with respect to money that they brought in? Right. And just for the audience's clarification, IRS 280E has been firmly established over the last number of years in court cases that for constitutional purposes, the cost of production, the cost of a cultivation, the cost of purchasing inventory is deductible, but your dispensary costs in general are not going to be deductible. Right. Good point. And I call them the big three, retail rent, retail labor, and advertising. But let me ask you a question, because I saw this in, in some of the notes for the case. In your opinion, you know, where does this end? Right? You and I are both professionals. We deal with individuals who touch the plant on a regular basis, and then we get paid. You know, Do professionals who work with people in this industry have to now be concerned that the IRS might start looking at, at their tax returns? Yeah, that's a good point. I think what you really happened in the case of alternative health, and I don't have all the facts at my fingertips right now, enough common ownership that they thought the management oh. company uh, was part of the touch the plant company. Uh, so far, I haven't Got seen it. 2ED expand beyond what we've seen in alternative health, but mm -hmm. to be determined, there's still a lot of moving parts here. I think a lot of smart people in this industry don't see any normalization of cannabis laws or rules at the federal level, certainly till after mm -hmm. the 2020 election. I've been saying that on several of our shows. So we're going to have to learn to live with it, structure your business in a way that you can survive and be profitable, even if you can't take some of your retail tax deductions. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and what you're saying there echoes what I tell every one of my clients who walks in my door and is looking to get a dispensary license. And the very first question is, who's your accountant? And who understands 280E and is going to be able to explain it to you so that when you put together your business plan, you've properly taken that into account and you've done the things that you can do. And right, there's really uh, the dispensary owners at this point really kind of have it good by comparison because we now have the whole body of case law in front of us that gives pretty good direction in terms of what you can and cannot do before you've you know, been deemed to have crossed the line. Yes, very good points. And probably the second or third question I ask prospective clients is, who's your attorney? And a lot of times it's a traditional attorney or a friend of the family, and I'll highly recommend they get a cannabis-specific attorney, 
especially on their license application and zoning and those those issues that affect that are really specialized to the cannabis industry. Yeah, I think that, you know, just tell anybody, look, you're voluntarily entering into an industry that's probably as heavily regulated or more than any other industry out there. And to not take advantage of the professionals who have developed an expertise and can kind of help you step through the minefields that exist in this industry is crazy to do. Well, let's switch it over to all things musical, a little more cheery subject than what we've been dwelling on. And I wanted to dive in, Jim, because last time, you know, you kind of teased us a little bit and and you've told me this story, so I know it. It's a good one. You teased us a little bit about uh, a brief venture off in your professional world where in addition to your day job as a uh, the CPA, you also got yourself involved in the world of rock and roll photojournalism. Yeah, that's right. Probably one of the funnest hobby jobs I've ever had sure. was back in my 40s. I was at Rotary one day and the editor of the newspaper, he and I are about the same age. His dad ran the newspaper and I was telling him stories of going on tour with dead. At that time, uh, it was a further another dead incarnations and fish. And he goes, Oh, you should write about that for the paper. And at first I said, no, because uh, I was very busy with my CPA practice, but I thought about it. And our older son was in high school at the time. And, I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. I'm going to give it a try. And the reason I mentioned my son is because he, at the time, and he ended up going into uh, journalism and media. He's 31 now, so that tells you how long ago this was. And he got an internship with a music magazine in Boulder, Colorado. So we were doing it together, which made it even more fun. And our first time out, we went to Bruce Hornsby at the Paramount Theater in Denver. And took some notes at the show and came home and turned in my article. And they actually, the, the newspaper gave me a contract. I, I got paid $50 an article. So it was a, a real deal. But I very quickly also learned and the, the other people down in the pit, as they call it, which is the space between the audience and the stage where you can take pictures, uh, to be sure I got a photo pass as well. And so I was... For eight years, from 2002 to 2009, I was a photojournalist. And I guess one of my best stories that I love to tell, one of the most exciting things that happened to me on that was I just happened to be in uh, New York City, Times Square on business. And Phil Lesh and Friends was playing at the Nokia Theater, which is down underneath where The Lion King is is performed. And totally sold out. All the scalpers out on Times Square were saying, who's this Phil Lesh guy? I wish we had tickets to sell for that because <laughs> there was so many people. It was a very small place, uh, maybe uh-huh. a th- uh, uh, certainly under a thousand people. So a very intimate setting. And so, yeah, Phil Lesh was playing it underneath where they performed The Lion King. And so I walked up to the box office and dropped off my business card, my, my newspaper business card saying that I worked for the Daily Times Call in Longmont, Colorado. And, uh-huh. and I... Um, came back a little bit later. Uh, he goes, well, let me let, let me check on this. I said, hey, can I get a photo pass tonight or a press pass for Phil and friends? And, uh, and it's crazy Times Square, you know, shoulder to shoulder, the big neon lights going and dropped off sure. my business card. And he goes, well, come back in a little while and I'll let you know. And so I went out and got pizza, came back and I looked through the glass window at the box office and there's my business card and attached to it was a, a photo pass. 
And uh, oh, it was just the biggest thrill that here I am in New York City, don't know a soul. Nobody knows who I am. I'm little Jim Marty from Longmont, Colorado. And yet I got a, a press pass the night of the show for Phil Lesh. And uh, so I was in the pit taking pictures, still have those pictures. Wrote a nice story about it for my hometown newspaper, my trip to New York. But sort of a side story on that, back to cannabis, is obviously in Phil Lesh show, people are smoking a lot of marijuana in the small theater underneath the large theater where the Lion King is being performed and all the parents are there seeing the Lion King with their friends. And there was a lot of complaints about the marijuana smell getting up into the the, the Lion King theater. And the, the New York patrons were complaining about the marijuana smell at their Lion King performance. Although maybe it gave them a new insight on the Lion King performance that they hadn't uh, previously <laughs> recognized. Yep. So That's I did that great. for like yeah. eight, eight, eight years and had a great time with it. And then I had a my contract was coming to an end at the newspaper and I was offered the opportunity to, to teach for a semester as a substitute professor at CU Boulder. So I, I let my mm -hmm. contract expire. But it, even to this day, my partners still tell me that, you know, my writing skills are, are really good. And I, I attribute that to the years I spent as a rock and roll photojournalist because my editors were very tough on me. They really improved my writing. Oh, yeah. yeah, to this day, it's been a, a great benefit college, to my right? business world. Yep, that taught me good writing way back in the day. So that's a lot of fun, though. That, and that's always the nice thing about, you know, when you can function as a journalist is it gets you into places. Uh, not only does it get you into places, but it puts you inside those places, that, you know, at a location where you never be, to get to actually be down in the pit, get to go backstage and talk to the performers and, you know, and see them on a more personal level is, is always very exciting. Although, I don't know about you, but... I always had this thing going with my buddies where I always said, you know, there's a part of me that would be fascinated to spend a few hours with Jerry Garcia, but there's also a side of me that's not really sure I want to do that because, you know, right now I envision him as this hero that I think that he is. And gosh, if I sat down and talked with him for 10 minutes and he turned out to be not as cool as I thought he was or something, that could really be devastating. But my buddies always argued, no way you're going to sit with Jerry and think he's not cool. So, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those that... The opportunity never came yeah. along, so I never had to put it to a test. But it's great when you get to go and meet people and kind of see them. Sure, I met Phil, I met Bob Weir, I met Les Claypool, I met Greg Allman. Now he's passed away. Uh, just an interesting yep. uh, side story from this week as we head towards the end of this uh, broadcast, this podcast. I was at the Argosy mm -hmm. Bookstore in Midtown Manhattan. I was picking up a, a couple of, of books in there. And um, the lady pointed out that they had a lot of famous autographs little photographs or playbills from Broadway plays with people like Carol Channing and famous Broadway actors and actresses. And they had their autographs for sale, you know, $45, $50. Some were more valuable, four or $500. So I said, really, you have autographs? I said, do you have John Lennon? Do you have Jerry Garcia? And what was interesting is she said, John Lennon's autograph is almost impossible to find. Really? But she says, occasionally we get Jerry Garcia, but I don't have him in any Garcia autographs in here today. But So if you ever see a John Lennon autographs, snap it up because it's very rare. Okay, good point. Good to know. Um, well, that's great stuff. What else we got, Larry, before we wrap it up? Well, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk with you about is I don't know if you're a big fan or if you follow all the Dave's picks that, you know, they release on a regular basis. They release four of them a year in addition to the regular box sets. Um, we, we still have to get to the Giant Stadium box. Yes, I get those. And, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to Giant Stadium next week, I hope. 
Uh, but uh, they just announced that the new Dave's pick number 32, which will be the last one for 2019, is going to be released next week. It's a show from the Philadelphia Spectrum in March of 1973. And here's what I say about it without having heard it yet. Number one, I've never heard a bad show from the Philly Spectrum ever. And 1973 remains my favorite year of Grateful Dead music. So in that respect, and having seen the set list of what's on there, it's a very, very impressive set list, and I'm very excited to get it and listen to it. The flip side of that is that I, there may not be very many 1973 shows left that they haven't released. Um, and while I love it, my whole Grateful Dead experience really begins in the 1980s and goes forward from there. And I've written a number of emails out to David Lemieux, like I had to Dick Lovatla previously, you know, kind of asking and, and hinting and pushing and hoping that they'll eventually start to break into the 1980s and really start to put out some stuff that we can have that, uh, you know, uh, memorializes the sound during the period of time when we were seeing them, which would be a great thing. So while I'm not complaining about this, and I love 1973 Grateful Dead, I'm getting quite a bit of 1973 Grateful Dead and would really look forward to some of the more modern stuff. Yes, me, me too. Um, and while I, I like 73, you know, that's basically pre-hiatus, so there's no eyes of the world, there's no... Uh, half step. There's not, nothing from blues for Allah, so uh, right. I'm more in line with the '77, which I think many many Deadheads feel that '77 was yep. one of their best years. Yep, '73 and '77. I would agree with that, and, and you're absolutely right that there's a lot of stuff that comes later. Uh, what I like about '73, though, uh, and particularly this show, is that they're still playing songs like Be "Me and Bobby McGee." which kind of fell off of the playlist after they took their extended uh, break in 75. And the other thing about uh, 73 that was nice that year is they covered the song Sing Me Back Home by Merle Haggard quite a bit. And it shows up on this show as well. And that was the song that after 73, I don't remember seeing on very many other set lists. So it's nice to go back and catch some of these performances from back then. Here they're, they're really strong playing. But I, I would agree with you because after 73, probably 77 is the second year of the most number of uh, Dave's Picks releases. So uh, here's hoping that this will be as good as it looks and that we're still going to get some uh, 1980s and maybe even a 1990s show somewhere along the way. Well, you're right. And I think, you know, we're both making each other's point that after the hiatus, they had a lot more of their own material that they could play. Yeah. And, and so some of the yeah. covers, of, you know, me and Bobby McGee, I'm quite sure, is a Chris Christopherson song. And, uh, yeah. You mentioned Merle Haggard, and you know they, they would do several Merle Haggard shows. I was lucky enough to see Merle Haggard just a few years ago, and he was just great. He opened for Bob Dylan in Denver, and I, wow. he was just stunned and amazed at the reception that he got from us fans because we just howled after every single song. And I have to say, that okay. night, I think he was better than Bob Dylan. That could very well be. Merle Haggard is great. He wrote some really great songs. He was a great performer. And I'm sorry that I never had a chance to see him, but uh, I've heard nothing but good things about his performances. Yep, it was, a, it was a great night. Wonderful. Before we run out of time, I just want to set the table for our listeners next week's show. One of the things that Jim and I have been spending a lot of time focusing on is the current vaping crisis. We didn't really get to it today, but I know, Jim, that you had some comments based on what you saw in New York and Boston. We're very lucky that on our next show we're going to have a, a special guest good friend of mine from way, way back in the day, Andy Greenberg. She's an owner of a company out in San Francisco called Society Chain. And I'll let her explain it better when she's on the show. But basically, it's a, it's a, a woman-owned business that focuses on 
uh, women customers in the cannabis industry and kind of creates uh, an environment for them where they feel comfortable uh, reaching out and trying new products and learning about cannabis uh, in a very comfortable space with other women. They've done a really, really good job. And uh, one of the things that she mentioned to me was some of the backlash that they've seen as a result of the vaping crisis. And rather than you and I sit here and kind of, you know, hypothesize with what's going on, I figure it's good to really get somebody in who's dealing with it on a daily basis and uh, can give us some insight into it. Well, that'll be great because I'm here in Massachusetts right now where there's a total ban on all vape including nicotine, and it's causing disruptions in the market where the people who are using the nicotine, the jewel, et cetera, to get off of cigarettes are having to go up to New Hampshire and get over the border to buy their uh, nicotine vape pen cartridges. So, yeah, we'll talk more about that tomorrow. I'm glad we'll go have a special guest. I think that's it for today. So Jim Marty here saying over and out. Larry? Me too. I hope everyone has a nice day, Jim. I will look forward to speaking to you again next week. Enjoy Boston. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.